Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. Uh, this is Carlo, and um, sadly, um, I, I I have to admit that uh, Pete is he he went off with this really shady looking character who said that there was like some stairs and a tunnel that he was going to lead him through, and then he got mad at me because he thought I I ate everything. I don't know. I really wish him the best. I really should go after him because that guy didn't look very trustworthy. But uh, in in Pete's stead, I do have Aaron and Carly of Hit Factory. Uh, how are you guys doing? We are doing great. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm glad to be to, to be accompanied by yourselves. Um, it's almost as if you had heeded Gondor's call. <laughs> Heed, we did. Heed, we did. And we will answer. <laughs> and here we are. So, uh, folks, if you haven't figured it out by now or haven't read the, the the episode title, we are going to be discussing the 2003 film Peter Jackson's Return of the King, uh, the finale, if you will. Um, so, uh, overall, I also I, I'll say this: um, I watched this in the theaters way back when. Um, so, uh, I don't know if you, uh, managed to see it in the theaters, Aaron. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure Carly either. <laughs> uh, I, I did indeed. In fact, you know, on our fellowship episode, I mentioned that, uh, I kind of sort of accidentally came across these movies because my, my dad took me to the first one, uh, on like an early dismissal day from, from school. Um, but then I saw each of the subsequent uh, sequels in theaters, and by the point that this one came out, I was uh, approaching like high school age and feeling a little bit more rebellious and getting to the point where like moms and dads would like drop us off at the the mall or the theater for the day. Uh, and I actually saw this one, I think, four, three and a half times. <laughs> I, I I actually sat and and watched it through its three and a half hours three times. And one night, uh, we uh, on, had on separate on separate occasions. On separate occasions, yes, okay. never never back to back. <laughs> Just a full, full ten <laughs> hours of viewing. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that that's you got a strong bladder. <laughs> yeah, I, well, the last time uh, was not meant to be. I we we decided after like a a full day of like paintballing or something that we were going to go and see it uh, myself and a, a handful of friends, and got dropped off at the theater at like nine o'clock to see this movie and by by 10 30 um i was asleep so i i didn't see much past like uh you know faramir riding out to meet meet the enemy at uh at osgiliath on the pelinor and uh and beyond that 
to haven't haven't revisited it in a theater setting since, but have watched it at home multiple times. I've been probably too many times. I've dedicated a lot of my life now to watching your, specifically Return of the King, the third <laughs> entry in the series. Well, uh, wait till you hear about the guy who wrote the books. <laughs> right? <laughs> he spent lots of time. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I totally get what you mean, uh, Aaron. Honestly, I, I, I don't even, I haven't, even kept count of how many times I've probably watched and rewatched these, including the because we're doing the the theater like the theatrical release ones uh, only, uh, mainly because we we don't we're not pathological you know we don't have any problems with our with our the way our <laughs> brains work, <laughs> and we don't want to spend like twelve hours total of our lives rewatching the extended editions. Um, but yeah, uh, I've probably watched this way too many times as well. <laughs> this I, one, it's weird because I think this one and Fellowship are definitely like the the very big ones for me. And uh, I, I mean, we we talked about it in the, the previous episode about the Two Towers, uh, which is perfectly fine. But when bookended by Fellowship and Return of the King, you go... Yeah, well, he's a middle child, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, I. It's funny because I I know that when we were discussing the two towers, I said, "Oh, this one might be the best one," and mm-hmm. and now after like watching this one again, I'm like, I maybe I'm just being uh, compelled by the joy of revisiting them because each time <laughs> I've watched rewatched them for for this series now. I've I've been like no 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 this is the best one every single time <laughs> when we were watching the fellowship he was like yeah this is for sure the best one and then we were watching two towers and he was like you know I was wrong uh, I actually think this is the best of all three movies and then he said the same thing about <laughs> Return of the King when we were watching it which yeah. I think is a testament to you know how kind of swept away uh, you can get by by the films and you know. One thing that I will say, you know, despite the fact that we're not doing the extended editions, I would actually say, because I have seen all of them um, and, and dedicated a significant portion of my life to that as well. Um, I think that the extended edition of The Return of the King, even in spite of being the longest one by like almost an hour, is the only one that's actually maybe worth sitting through that doesn't like undercut the pacing in significant ways. Mm-hmm. Um that that adds enough substance that's like okay this is actually maybe worth it um you get like you know the actual res- like kind of resolution of like saruman and and grima's fate and and how pippin finds the palantir you get like that sequence where uh the the witch king confronts gandalf you get the mouth of sauron in that one at the black gate like there's so many cool ones in there i was like expecting the first time i watched it to like actually have them do the scouring of the shire in it too just because it was adding so much uh, back in from the books yeah i mean uh, that that is one of the i understand the reasons why but the scouring of the shire is in at least in the source material is so very important um it, it it really is, and 
I mean, it, it is also really funny to me that uh, even though we're not going to talk too much about the books, uh, let me just do a small detour and say that it's really funny to me that um, from living in Orthanc and being considered the wisest amongst the wise, uh, a super powerful being is simply out there sort of scamming hobbits now <laughs> just, just to get back at Frodo because he's so petty. It's so funny. And oh, and and his his mob name is Sharky, you know. That's so funny. <laughs> I know. Sharky's awesome. I should have actually made that our like our display name on the recording today. That would have been a good oh, one. Oh shit. You know, that's see, that's the thing. What he wanted to do to the Shire is build Sharky's machine. <laughs> Ooh. Well done. I, I was I was I I wasn't really looking for that one, but it was set up. I couldn't, right there. I couldn't help myself. Yeah. Um, so, um, that being said, well, also, uh, apart from the Scouring of the Shire, the, they do include the, um, the, the very short, but very effective scene of Aragorn sort of presenting himself t- to the Palantir and, mm-hmm. uh, showing, you know, showing himself to Sauron and showing him the sword that has been reforged and yes. everything. So. Uh, and and that really then uh, sort of makes the the final battle for the Pelennor Fields um, or the the battle before the Black Gate uh, really sort of resonate because it makes it does stitch together very well what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I'm jumping way ahead there. So <laughs> we start off <laughs> with I forget was it um, it's. Marion Pippin, oh, and uh, Gandalf uh, meeting them at Orthanc, and that's yeah. where they they find the Palantir. Right. Well, and even and, before that, we're treated to a, a lovely flashback with Andy Circus in the flesh, mm-hmm. um, and and our friends Smeagol and Deagle, and showing us the origin of of Gollum, um, which I, I I think is a, actually a, a pretty effective scene, all things considered. I, I think it's. Um, you know, effect wise and makeup wise, like pretty cool to see the transformation. And it's always just nice to see, to see Andy Circus yeah. doing his thing, um, you know, unencumbered and, and without, without the, the many layers of, of digital makeup on. I found the yeah. character conception of Gollum, AKA Smeagol's devolution to be really effective. Um, like, especially for someone who, uh you know doesn't have a ton of experience with the source material or the movies themselves um i really liked just sort of seeing a little bit more about um about smeagol because he is actually one of my favorite characters i mean i think like uh i said <laughs> i said to aaron when we were watching this last time um that his character to me feels the most rotund and I don't mean in flesh, but in terms of uh, how I feel he's being presented in the movies. I think some Mm -hmm. of the other characters feel a little bit one note or sort of like, okay, here's Legolas. He's like doing his thing. Not that he's not an interesting character, but, um, but I definitely feel like in the movies, um, that Gollum is more rounded out. So I appreciated starting with that, just actually getting to see his sort of his plummet into, into Gollum dumb. 
um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this one. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's not really a, a a life goal for many other people. No. <laughs> don't want to try to achieve Gollumdom. Don't want to uh, achieve yeah, Gollumdom. I, yeah, uh, but but oh yeah. Jokes aside, I do want to point out that you're absolutely correct. And and um, one of the really interesting things about the story itself is how sort of open eyed it is about Gollum. And possibly because he was sort of an ancestor to the hobbits that we know, um, serves as sort of like a cautionary tale, right? Mm. Um, he's got a split personality, like he's had some sort of some sort of break with his uh, with his personality. He has a a sort of pathological tick uh, where he just he can't even like it's like the the out damn spot. Right. Uh, of Lady Macbeth, right? Except that his is like it's down in the throat, going oh, oh. right, yeah, just because <laughs> he he just sort of can't get over the fact that he has to continue living for so long, you know, and and com- you know, continuing to commit like these sins or you know working evil upon the world in some way, shape, or form. Because I mean, uh, even in the source materials, they're not. Necessary. They they do sort of pity Gollum in a sense, but they they also have no illusions. Like you know, he he escaped their grasp for a while, and then there's reports of children going missing. You're like, oh, that's not good. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to ask both of you if, um, again, not to focus too much on the the source material, but just as a question, as I as I think about my experience with Gollum in the movies. Um, if he is, you know, portrayed sympathetically to a certain extent in in the books. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. I mean, um, there is, I believe it's in the previous movie, uh, but I don't remember if it's repeated in this one where it's uh, basically it's uh, – and I know it's definitely mentioned in, in Fellowship where, you know, uh, Frodo says, you know, uh, pity – Poor, you know, pity Bilbo that didn't, you know, run them through when he first saw him. And uh, Gandalf sort of admonishes him uh, that, you know, pity, pity is what stayed his hand, you know, and basically is gives him the, the, the speech that, you know, all those who wish to, uh, you know, deal death, uh, you know, don't know, even the wise don't know all ends and don't be too hasty in dealing out death and, and judgment, you know, mm, that type right. of thing. And uh, when they when they do meet up with him uh, in the two towers, uh, there is a line of dialogue that Frodo says is like, "Now that I do see him, I do pity him." Mm-hmm. And That's you right. know, so that in and of itself, the fact that they reach an uneasy um, sort of peace with Gollum uh, or Smeagol um, just shows the fact that you know, one, they're desperate, and two. Frodo does actually kind of see himself reflected in, you know, Gollum Smeagol. That's what he could become if he does not destroy the ring. Right. There's a very clear sense of empathy on, uh, not just sympathy, but empathy on Frodo's part. That he, he too understands the burden and, and understands the pain that comes with um, carrying that burden and that that uh, certainly makes him more, you know, sympathetic um, 
empathetic toward toward Smeagol. The other thing I'll say, you know, we spoke about this uh, on the Fellowship episode. You guys know Samwise is my favorite character. Mm. I love that dude. <laughs> he's I'm just I think he's like the best part of the movies, like on in every single movie. Um, but what I was thinking about on this last watch of uh, um, the Return of the King is, and if I'm stating the obvious, please please let me know. Uh, is that um, Smeagol and Samwise are uh, each a side of the same coin in my mind, um, and they are both uh, there. Um, to to help Frodo quite materially in his journey. And I, you know, remarked to Aaron at a certain point that like Frodo literally can't do anything without Samwise. He's just like completely feckless for the most part. <laughs> that's my read on it. Um and but it's that's also the case with regards to uh to Smeagol Gollum that um so much of their progression in the story, uh, even what we don't see, is uh, because of Smeagol and Smeagol sort of enabling them to move forward, regardless of his motivations. Uh, he does accomplish that. And so I, I just found myself thinking about the ways in which um, Samwise and Smeagol are so similar uh, and yet uh, polar opposites from each other. Um, in many ways. And, you know, both sort of very devoted to Frodo, uh, almost perversely, um, both very much intent on, you know, their, their end goal of, of getting Frodo to, uh, to the finish line, um, both, uh, you know, sort of moved by distrust toward the other, um, and just just a lot of similarities and and also that they uh, that they're both very material in Frodo's progress. Um, and so, you know, it made me appreciate each of the characters more thinking of them as sort of like uh, the yin and yang of of the same the same sort of place in the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had also talked about this in uh, the Fellowship episode, where um, the more I think about it, the more I think about how there are these sort of yin-yang or mirror-type uh, characters throughout the movie. Right. And and so Smeagol, Gollum uh, are actually reflections of Frodo and Sam, just sort of twisted, right? Mm, right. Joker fight, if you will. No, no, not, not Joker fight. Um, sorry, I said twisted, and uh, the 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 Z just slipped in there in my brain. Yeah, um, Smeagol's got that yeah. that damaged tattoo across his forehead. <laughs> He's got the little tattoo of a of a smiling uh, smiling mouth. On yes. Um, I mean, they they both have the same physique mainly, but um, but yeah. Uh, I, I I do think that like the um I guess the golem, which is the more sort of um distrustful conniving version, versus Smeagol, who is the uh the version of of him that is more sort of 
I guess, obsequious and fawning of Frodo mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I don't know which of the two is supposed I, – I would say that the the more malicious version of, of Gollum Smeagol is reflected in Sam, who is also – like, one thing that really starts to ramp up in this one – um, and it starts in the two towers, but it really ramps up here is how how sort of violently opposed to Smeagol Gollum Sam is uh, to a degree that actually causes, um, you know, sort of Gollum and Smeagol to then sort of conspire. If you can call talking to yourself conspiring um, <laughs> to to then betray Frodo. Uh, earlier, possibly earlier than than maybe he would have thought of. Right. Um, it it does have this very very big um, sort of fateful feeling to it, right? That it's he, if if he hadn't done that, maybe maybe Smeagol Gollum would have you know betrayed them at Mount Doom and not you know take them through the tunnel to to get caught by Shelob. Right. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Uh, so. Um, and that's jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, it, it's it's something that I think about a lot because the I think in the in in the movie it's still present. Uh, you do get that feeling that if Sam might have sort of gone along to get along a little longer, you know, things might have turned out slightly differently. But these mm-hmm. were all. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Gollum isn't. Uh, he's a ring addict. He wants some, some of that ring. He's a, ring. he's a ring addict. He's boot and black tar ring. That's all he wants. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fentanyl to rule them all, you know? Yeah. There's fentanyl in the ring in uh, in Queens lately. So just be, know that, everybody. Be safe out there. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so um, I do. We want to talk a little bit about the uh, sort of war and rumors of war aspect of this film because it, it comes really quickly, and it's sort of interwoven rather skillfully here. Yes. Um, yes. Let's do that. Definitely. All right. So, um, if I'm remembering correctly, we have the open question to uh Theoden King after the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, where he basically throws the question back, you know, where was Gondor when we needed them? Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, the 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 question being that if Gondor, you know, lights their beacons, uh, will will you answer? Is what Aragorn asks uh Theoden. And, you know, so um I forget because we get we get the oh well that's because uh i forget pippin who is a fool of a took does what a fool of a took does always he always does this it's he always sucks. pippin pippin sucks <laughs> <laughs> well he's I'm, he's such he's such a lunkhead I, he such is. a lunkhead i'm i'm more sympathetic to pippin i think than carly is but when i was watching these with her she did point out that on like no less than I think like five occasions, some sort of turmoil and turbulence that the fellowship or members of the fellowship run into is explicitly the fault of Pippin and his own like negligence. Like totally avoidable, (laughs) just like him being a total idiot. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're not keeping count here, folks. It was at least five <laughs> times. Um, but yeah, so he he becomes enamored uh, of the the Palantir, right? Uh, because in part because you know as soon as he grabs it, he's sort of like looking at it, and uh, so I think this to. I think we talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating that at the very least in the sort of like the, the legendarium of middle earth uh, objects of power do have like this lure to them and they can mm-hmm. tempt you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's made pretty, pretty clear here that, you know, like, uh, Pippin, after you know having Gandalf like intervenes, like oh, I'll take that, and you know takes it away from him in in a very sort of condescending but kindly manner. Uh, his palms have been itching to grab that thing ever since, and as soon as they make camp or go to sleep, uh, he goes in, and we have this sort of um, semi. It, it, here, it's played a little bit for laughs. Uh, I was just thinking of a, a similar scene where in um, you guys ever see uh, Mama throw Mama from the train? I never have. No, I have not. <laughs> There's a sequence where you know the the Mama character is supposedly asleep, but when they walk in, she's like her eyes are open and it's just like very stri- very sort of uh, supposed to be funny, but also disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is the same sort of feeling you get. Uh, where you know he looks at Gandalf is just like sleeping with his eyes open. It's very odd and off-putting, but he realizes that you know he waves his hand in front of his face and he notices that there's no reaction. So he's like, oh, I don't know, I'll just put this other round thing, which happens to be like a pitcher or something, right? <laughs> it is in in the crook of his arm and and grabs the palantir and goes decides to i don't know like go in the corner <laughs> and take a look Just, like skulk it's, away it's a throw mama from the train with the raiders of the lost ark thrown in for good measure <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> well, and, I mean, it's, it's, the it's the corner of the same building too it's like the same room and it's right like, okay i loved i loved the detail of you know gandalf uh the the white what what whatever his new wizard name is um i loved the detail of him sleeping or sort of like meditating with his eyes open because a a a figure of that much power and like sort of otherworldliness like doesn't just like take a nap right like it it just it (laughs) i really liked it like i i i suppose it is is supposed to be there for a little bit of laughs, but it also like made logical sense to me. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, this Gandalf doesn't sleep like a normal human. Like, why would he? He does he's, astral projection while he's right, sleeping. Exa- no, literally, I was thinking that the shared like, collective consciousness, like, like with cats. He is. Yes, he's <laughs> he's often like in like the the cat consciousness somewhere. He's he's doing the Middle Earth version of the internet. Yes, <laughs> use your brain directly. He totally exactly. is. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and then they, they do, uh, a very sort of deft thing, which is to, uh, just make the Palantir look like the Eye of Sauron. Uh, and you know, you get this sort of slow-mo, very, very on the nose, but campy, uh, like depiction of Billy Boyd, like, like stretching his mouth in agony as he like holds what looks like a bowling ball, you know? (laughs) 
it, it, it's it's so funny, but it works. It does. Um, it, it, and uh, so then, you know, we, we, of course, get the line for the second time in the series, at the very least, where Gandalf, you know, fool of a took. And he, you know, basically uh, realizes that, you know, he, the, the, you know, Pippin's made contact mm. with the open channel. <laughs> He's like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Uh, and there's worry there because obviously, you know, what did you tell him? And um, and it turns out that, yeah, well, he, he didn't really manage to tell him much of anything. But because Pippin is such a lunkhead and is now uh, would would have been pinpointed, you know, where he is uh, and therefore in terrible danger because, like, basically they'd send all the Nazgul directly to him. Right. Uh, uh, you know, Gandalf and Pippin now have to go running away uh, to Minas Tirith. And before that, we get this like very sort of um, effective, effectively emotional moment where, you know, Mary is just like bristling. He's just so angry, mm-hmm. but so worried and sad and just enraged that Pippin has sort of done something again that has now they, they're not going to be together for the first time in a long time. And uh, I, I, I do think that, uh, was it Dominic Monahan uh, manages to deliver those lines with enough sort of anger, but just quivering right on the edge of uh, just like breaking down mm-hmm. that it really works. Uh, it really does work. And you realize like that's also Billy Boyd manages to, you know, pull off like a completely innocent, you know, it, it's sort of like the actually sincere version of McNulty going, the fuck did I do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Great reference point. Completely agree. <laughs> yeah. And by this point too, like I, you know, I don't know the, obviously the, the, the shooting order or anything like that, but it certainly feels like, you know, Dom Monahan by this point has kind of come into his own a little bit more as an actor by this movie. Granted, they give him more to do here um, than in in previous films, but I uh, of the four of like the main Shire folk and the actors portraying them in in the Fellowship, especially, I remember feeling like he's the weakest one of the four. Not not you know because his character isn't interesting or because he's not entertaining, just that. Uh, you know, in in terms of chops, I was just like, he's the one that I'm finding the hardest time believing and in, in getting invested in. And I think that they go to good lengths in this movie specifically to do a little bit more of that with Mary and Pippin both. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do. I do also think that uh, they, they gave uh, Billy Boyd a little bit more to do in this one as well. Because yeah, there is definitely. That, that conflict, right? Um. And of course, they reach Minas Tirith. And I, you remember, um, uh, Aaron, we were talking about this in the the previous movie in, mm-hmm. in the Two Towers. Uh, when they do reach uh, uh, Minas Tirith, and they they go see, you know, they have an audience with Denethor, um, who is played, you know, rather effectively, rather well uh, by is it John Noble? John Noble, yeah, he uh, he's also. I, I don't know if if you've ever engaged with it, but, uh, I am, uh, a, sh- a sh- pretty shameless, uh, apologist for the short lived, uh, Fox series, uh, fringe 
that J.J. Yep. Abrams created. Um, I, in which, yeah, I've, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things. I just haven't really gotten into it. Yeah, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I knew him from this first, but he he plays a, a pretty significant role throughout that series, and uh, really, really made me appreciate him more. But I think he does a good job in this one too. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he's effective. I, I do think that, um, and and to perhaps uh, circle back, what I had been mentioning to you uh, in the Two Towers is that we get, you know, in Fellowship, we get Boromir. And then in the Two Towers, we get Faramir, who is basically Boromir <laughs> reskinned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because they have the same motivation suddenly. Right. And uh, I had mentioned that, you know, this to me is a way for you to foreshadow uh, that through his sons, Denethor is exerting what he wants, you know, how he wants the world to be. Mm-hmm. And therefore, by having both his sons be sort of really interested in, in gaining power in sort of at all, you know, and at all costs, uh, they don't really see the danger of the one ring. Uh, you know, even though, you know, like Boromir was sitting in the council and they said, it's horribly dangerous. And they know that the history of, of Minas Tirith is basically, it is currently kingless because, the the first king said, "Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to destroy this ring. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like what it does. And then uh, also, well, I'm going to take it uh, out into the country. Actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was supposed to be taking it to Rivendell when he gets waylaid and gets mm-hmm. killed as a result. Um, so knowing all that, they still want the ring. And I was telling you that the that seems like foreshadowing for the fact that Denethor is basically a bad ruler, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, that becomes pretty apparent really quickly. Yes, uh, I I do I do think he's justified in that. Uh, oh, you you're going to bring this, you know, this riffraff to just supplant me. Uh, maybe I have something to say about that. So I I, I get that. Right, but he is. And you you brought up this point, Carlo, and I think it's a good one um, that that he has a touch, maybe more than a touch of like the Mad King in him um, Mm -hmm. in at least insofar as the movie is concerned. And this is where, you know, you all can get into to the source material. But I. I sort of felt like he was, you know, obstinate and paranoid and erratic and didn't quite understand why. Like, I knew that he was distressed, uh, you know, at the loss of his son and um, and all the other shit going on. But but I didn't necessarily feel like I understood why he um why he was so paranoid and intent that they were planning to unseat him. Um, and that, that came off, you know, as a little bit, a little bit mad Kingish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I had mentioned that like, uh, offline that, you know, it, it came across very, you know, madness of King George, right? Uh, yes. Big time. You know, like, Oh, we have to appease him or whatever, you know? And, yeah. and, and as the movie progresses, it gets even worse. Um, 
and and the sad thing is that there is I understand perhaps why uh they altered this but and again I guess we're going to have to dip in real quickly into the source material um it becomes apparent later uh in in like after the fact that basically uh Denethor also had uh I guess they had captured one of the one of the other palantirs um and so from a screenwriting or a writing perspective what i'm what i'm thinking is that if you present another palantir uh i think that the worry was that uh that it would confuse people right yeah too well, many balls wait, in what? play literally and figuratively <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much but i mean the 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 interesting thing about that is that uh the the Palantir that Denethor has is basically has been basically taken over by I don't remember if it's Sauron himself or the Witch King. Oh, and they're basically feeding they're feeding him misinformation. Oh, yeah. okay. So he too is sort of like a a um you know a, a parallel to Theoden. Yep. Yeah, Got it. Exactly okay. right. That makes more sense. I, 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 knowing that, I understand his actions and his sort of paranoia a bit more. Yeah, I mean, and and it's weird because I, I would have, I think you're you're absolutely right. Like watching it now, with like a critical eye, and trying to divorce like what I know from the source material, and what I'm seeing on on the screen. Yeah, he he definitely just looks sort of a little crazy. Uh, mm. He does. <laughs> yeah, not to sound ableist, but he's, he 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 sounds and looks a little crazy. Yeah, uh, I mean, even to the point where he's asking Pippin after he sends Faramir to his death, <laughs> basically on a suicide mission, and uh, Faramir's last words before leaving to fulfill his duty. Uh, are you know uh, I I will go uh, th- if I return I would hope that you think more kindly of me father and he mutters that would depend on the manner of your return which is like okay so mm-hmm. you're just gonna cast him completely unsympathetically um, whereas you know uh, the Denethor that I'm finding outside of the films is much more. I'm not going to say exactly noble, but definitely of a noble lineage and very aware of it, but also somewhat fallen into this ennui that, you know, he has, you know, he, he's not, he's also grieving, but also before that, you know, this ennui that, you know, things have never changed. He is the the such and such steward of a line that he will never aspire. Like he can't level up and be king. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's also really funny because the the in the in the audience hall, there's like this high throne like there's steps like it's 20 feet off the ground like these steps that lead to this throne and then on the side there's this tiny seat where he sits (laughs) yeah it's like they they do a lot to like emasculate him a little bit in terms of like his aesthetic and and like his position within this giant throne um and and like even when he's like dining you know 
which I, I'll say this, you know, for, for some of the flattening they do here and, uh, and a little bit of the, the kind of one notedness of, of a character like, uh, like Denethor. One of my favorite scenes in, in the entire film is that, uh, one that is intercut between Billy Boyd singing Faramir and his men riding out across the fields back to his Gilead to their doom. And just like, the close-ups with the really heightened sound effects and pickups of like Denethor just like crunching on chicken bones and like squishing tomatoes like messily between his teeth. It's so good. And it's like, so Peter Jackson, it's just one of those moments where I was like, this is incredibly inspired for a scene that in a lesser film with, with a different director would have been not conceived this way. Right. I mean, I, I I still to this day am not entirely sure if like uh, part of the the way he chews almost looks like he's got some sort of tick, um, and when he f- when you finalize like that scene, like his last shot of his face, you see blood, and I'm not entirely sure if he's bitten himself mm. or that's mm-hmm. from like a chicken bone. Uh, yeah. which just heightens just the 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 sort of unhingedness yes. of Denethor as a character. Yes. Yeah, it's terrific. We for some reason I'm I'm always really fascinated with like eating scenes and like when it's when it's made into like grotesqueries like this. We we watched a film not long ago called Ravenous. Um, which is a have you seen this one uh carlo eight ages ago i, yeah. I really need to rewatch it I, I i i think it's a masterpiece it's it's fantastic uh guy pierce uh robert carlisle jeremy davies and 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 company um in in like a cannibal period like western um but one of the one of the first scenes in it is also one of its most disturbing in a film that is you know pretty bloody and about like eating people uh it's just like these soldiers sitting around a banquet table consuming like really rare meat and just like bloody pools of of just like uh, of of like steak or or pork or whatever it is and just eating and smacking and it reminded me of that and i was just like i don't know what it is about these kinds of scenes but for some reason i find them very captivating and just like repellent both at the same time <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it it's you you take for for granted, you know, that you have a body and that a body does certain things, but then suddenly if somebody just shows you what a body needs to do from a certain camera angle, it suddenly looks horrifying. Yeah, and it also serves, I think like in in this movie and in Ravenous what it evokes for me is, you know, the sort of the primal tendencies we have, right? Like eating is the thing that keeps us alive. And it's the thing that we've uh, figured out how to, you know, perfect and refine over over uh, many, many millennia. But, um, you know, I still eat like a cave person sometimes if I'm hungry enough, you know what I mean? Like it there. So what a lot, when these scenes that, that particularly uh, focus on, you know, sort of the grotesqueness as, 
as Aaron said, of of uh, consuming, imbibing, what have you, it does sort of evoke this kind of like primal state of mind, this like person who might be, you know, um, just uh, kind of barbarism to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly felt that on this watch with, uh, with Denethor. Yeah. And you're right. also, you're making me realize too, you know, that so often I think that like the, the capacity to eat and like consumption in general is often a thing that uh, people deny themselves when they're in places of distress. And so the, the conceit I think in this particular scene that he's able to gorge himself and do so messily and and like bloodily and and without remorse in the midst of you know kind of knowing that he has sort of ordered his his only living son into certain doom is one of those moments too that just like heightens the emotional impact of it and convinces us that this is a person who is is pretty far gone at this point in terms of his mm-hmm. ability to see uh to see reason. Yep. So, and that leads us to, well, you know what? We could, we could hold that because there is another point there, but let's, uh, because then we get basically Sam, uh, actually Sam Frodo and Gollum, uh, (laughs) going really close to like headquarters for one of the big bads. Yes. Uh, Just, you know, sort of like, yeah, let's, uh, let's head, uh, we're going to cut across the Witch King's front yard, uh, to get to these stairs. Yeah. Uh, we got to hop the which, fence. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, there is that scene where, you know, like Frodo suddenly feels the, the lure and starts walking across the bridge and they're like, no, 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 this way, this way. So, you know, they, they save Save him from certain, you know, uh, uh, yeah, snatch him out of the 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 jaws of Minas Morgul, which is uh, creepily rendered in like this sort of greenish light, uh, and just in time because basically there's a signal flare that they send up, uh, which you know in uh, basically a column of light just shoots up, you know, into the sky and the armies are on the march. So, you know, they, they scamper up the stairs and then there's that entire like mini drama of Sam trying to pry Gollum away from, from Frodo, uh, and, and not really succeeding. Nope. Uh, so, you know, and, and Gollum sort of, uh, whispering in, in Frodo's ear that, you know, Oh, watch, he'll ask you for the ring next or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you know, like basically Sam says, uh, you know, like I I noticed that you're not not eating very much. You're, you can, you barely sleep. Uh, the, the ring is really heavy to you. Um, I, I'm here to help master Frodo, you know, I, if maybe I could carry it for you for a while to lighten the load, and that just makes him snap. <laughs> mm-hmm. He more or less says, "You got this big weighty thing hanging off of you. Share the load, right?" Yeah. <laughs> so just being, you know, he's trying to improve Frodo's material circumstances. Really, right? He's just trying to help a brother out. Yep. 
So, uh, and then of course there's the entire, uh, mini, (laughs) mini plot of Gollum basically sleeping, uh, you know, pretending to sleep Mm -hmm. long enough to then, uh, for Sam to fall asleep, trying to watch, keep an eye on him and then stealing the remainder of their food and like tossing it over the cliff. Yep. Breadgate. Bread oh, well, you know, <laughs> it's Crumbgate. Crumbgate. That's what oh, it Crumbgate. is. <laughs> I swear, this sounded like that Dave Chappelle uh, stand-up where he's like they're talking about sprinkle some police, crack, sprinkle on a him. little crack on him. <laughs> um, except here, it's like sprinkle a little lembus on him, and you're like, right. what? <laughs> but Frodo it, fell so f- for it. Oh yeah, for sure, because Frodo's a dummy. Uh, <laughs> Frodo's a dummy. He's being he's being perverted by the ring, and and Smeagol has already been doing Gollum. Smeagol has already been doing a really good job, like priming, priming the the plate for him to be like, this guy's this guy's no good. This Samwise is is no good. And uh, look, see, he ate all the bread, and he. I really love the way that that Smeagol consistently refers to sam as fat so that like he's he's planting the seed in frodo's mind that samwise is just like gorging himself on food despite the fact that we hardly see sam eat at all in fact we know that he's often denying himself food so that frodo can eat but it's this really you know beautiful um like like detail of of Smeagol's manipulation, his abuser tactics on Frodo of like, you know, sort of getting him to see this twisted reality that isn't really there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then, you know, we get the entire scene where uh, <laughs> I, I laughed a little bit this time around because when uh, he tells Sam to go home, which, <laughs> you know, a little late for that. Oh my god! I was like, no, dude. Carly like, was like, where the fuck is he gonna go? He can't go home. Like, he's like, literally <laughs> at the end of the journey, and he's like, uh, yeah. okay, y'all, y'all just hop back to the Shire, no problem. <laughs> the gaffer just called me. I left the iron on. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, so I was like, what a dumb thing to say. <laughs> I will say though too that like you know we we have already. Uh, praised Sean Astin in this role, just the character being great and also him doing a, a wonderful job. It is heartbreaking seeing oh. him like in that moment, just like feel the entire weight He's of being so abandoned good. by his best friend oh, and just yeah. like collapsing into tears. And it's just like probably maybe the most, one of the most emotional moments of, of any of the films he's, he's doing excellent, excellent work as usual. Right. No, no, I mean that's that's great. And and to be clear, I wasn't laughing at that part. I was laughing when he gets to the bottom and he finds <laughs> he finds evidence of Crumbgate. Yeah. And he finds the Limbus and he like, does like the he does like the kung fu power up. <laughs> He's like grabs the Limbus <laughs> and grits his teeth and just like crushes it in his fist. <laughs> yes, so very funny. cartoonish. Well, and it's almost one of those moments too where it's like he sees it and for some reason he's like I I knew I didn't eat it, and it's like, dude, you already knew you didn't eat it. You like, knew you didn't eat it. <laughs> like you you know exactly what happened here. Like, <laughs> yeah, Samwise is the only one that's known what's going on the entire time. Yeah, 
I, and so uh, we we get the the entire scene with Shelob and mm-hmm. Frodo, which is creepy. It's great. Although Carly can't even watch that scene. I she's, literally can't oh, watch really? it. She's like averse to spiders, and it, it's a pretty pretty grotesque, creepy scene. Well, Carly, you know what? Um, let me tell you about the guy who wrote this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do know that he he was apparently as a child. Uh, he lived in South Africa, and it was I think it was like stung or, or I should say bitten uh, by like some sort of horrific spider. Oh God! And, and that has like he was sort of arachnophobic for a long time. Um, so I guess this is all of his fears <laughs> squeezed into a giant spider thing. Yeah. Because I, I think that that's one of the things here, which it works fine, but uh, Shelob is not exactly a spider. <laughs> She's more like an entity that is made primarily of darkness and shadow and just pure unmitigated malice mm. who sort of looks like a spider with a horrible like a horrible uh like i if i remember correctly the description is that uh, on the underside of her abdomen uh it's just like it glows with like that fungal light oh. just like Ooh. just disgusting it really is uh, and this spider looks too sleek and cool. <laughs> it looks very spidery. I'll give it that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, but, but the grotesqueness I think is still there. I mean, you're right. Like even just listening to you describe this like fungal underbelly, I'm like, I don't, I can't even, I don't want to consider that. But, but I do feel like, you know, Peter Jackson, his you know, background in horror, like he does a good job with this stuff because this is where like campy as it may be, it's still affecting. Like I, I was recoiling at this, Mm. at this sequence, just like utterly terrorized by it. And I think that's, you know, not just because the effects are rendered really well, um, it's another one of those scenes where you're like, I know I'm not watching something real, but like the the blend between uh, digital and practical effects here of just like the webs and the slime and and uh, her movements not feeling too too computerized versus like Legolas hopping on an elephant where you're like, I this is not. I, what are you? We'll talk about Go that. Away. But you, you weren't fooled by that? No. I was just like, and Aaron was like, you know, I love the Legolas stuff, but this one, this one doesn't cut it. But my point is, you know, th- this particular scene with Shelob is just like, is where I think Peter Jackson, it's this kind of stuff where he gets to really flex. And I, I've seen this movie only twice and both times I cannot watch this sequence in its entirety. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could, I could see that. Like, especially if you don't like spiders, this is a, yeah, this, this would definitely make my skin crawl. Um, but yeah, I, I think that also the, the fact that um, we get, you know, like the aftermath where Sam runs up a, uh, and, and finds Frodo, who is you know been stung and apparently pale and lifeless, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of wrapped in this webbing. Um, you know, after he he sort of uh, 
fights off Shelob, who, you know, in her apparent trying to sting him as well, uh, manages to basically get drive her own abdomen on uh, Sting, who, you know, uh, Sam had picked up along mm-hmm. the way. And uh, she creeps off, you know, to, to lick her wounds or whatever a spider does exactly. And uh, the the entire sequence where Sam is just like sort of holding him is is also very wrenching. It's mm-hmm. it's very well done. Um, can I briefly say that uh, the dude who played uh, Gorbog the Orc? Uh, can I just comment on just how great his physical acting is is he the the it's, green one like the kind of like yes. leader of the group yeah he's solid he's, a, he's like a the, good one. the like the comb over <laughs> the weird comb oh, over yeah yes and yes. He, yes he's like he's like kind of waddling like he's like kind of like mounting something and it, yeah his physicality in this one is solid and uh yeah it's, it's so funny and it's it's also off-putting because he's like you know he he's sort of like bird-like but also weird weirdly waddling mm-hmm. and uh like leaning forward it's just great so you know when when the inevitable happens which is that the uh, like sam hides away as they they you know come up on uh poor frodo just you know sort of laying there in the middle of the the pathway uh they realize oh no you know they they have actually had which is a great thing right because why wouldn't the orcs know a little bit about you know what's going on in that cave and they're like ah oh, no she likes to have her fun she stings them uh they look lifeless but then she takes them back and has her way with them and sam's over there like cursing himself like, oh my god why why did i do that uh and when the inevitable happens between orcs which is uh, they stick each other in the gut with sharp, uh, with with rusty jagged knives. <laughs> yep, always. I, I, I guess that's just the way they show affection for right. each other. <laughs> it's their bro bump. It is. It's their bro bump. <laughs> and like, since since we're jumping ahead here a little bit, you know, past um, some of the, we, we'll go back to the Gondor stuff, obviously, but going into you know this part here where where Frodo's you know being kept in this layer. Uh, and, and Sam has to come and rescue him. Like Sam goes fucking ape Ape. in this like hour of the movie. Like he fights a fucking spider. (laughs) And then in this moment too, like he's just like growling and like throwing his shadow against the wall to scare some orcs off. But then he ends up killing like four of them. Yeah. And he's like, like his body count in this one is the highest of any of the Shire folk for sure. And like. You know, maybe even more than like an Aowen or something overall. So <laughs> he yeah. definitely gets to uh, he gets to participate in the count between Grimly and Legolas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got four. He's got four uh, more least. than more than anyone would have probably got yes. on him. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess uh, Gollum is the one that has the highest body count, technically speaking. Oh, that's, yeah, true. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but yeah, I, I love the because I do actually think that that's uh, that was probably like the, the throwing the shadow on the wall uh, was taken from the Rankin Bass uh, Lord of the uh, Return of the King. Mm, yeah. uh, I believe that's the exact same thing that Sam does in there, uh, which works fine. It's it's a great it's a great scene. I'm not. You know, the, no, no shade on Peter Jackson. If it works, it works. Just do it live action, and you know, 
you you give someone that's watched that at some point a nod, you know, like a, a wink. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's sort of also great, and you get that uh, also the scene where when he finally like everything dies down, uh, he finally rescues Frodo, and he's like Frodo's like frantically you know, telling him like they they've got the ring. He's like, no, Mister Frodo, begging your pardon, I have it, and like the the whole little interplay where he's, it's played out. I think a beat, a slight beat too long, mm-hmm. but I did like that you get that small hesitation where he's like, wait, did it work? Is it working on Sam as well? Right, Uh-oh. right, right, right. But also too, maybe there's like an apprehension there where it's like, I don't know, this thing's really fucking up my friend, and like I still feel okay. Like maybe I can just do it from here. You know, maybe mm. I can maybe mm-hmm. I can carry this thing and shoulder the burden and let him just kind of come along. Yeah, right. it is a little ambiguous if it's that he's hesitating and it could be a little bit of both, right? Or all of the things that he's mm-hmm. hesitating because the ring is potentially working its its sway and also that, you know, he he cares so deeply for Frodo. When Frodo is in pain, he's in pain. And so he sees Frodo relieved of this burden and now has to give it back to him. Like I think I think both of those things are are um probably in play there. But I like that there is some ambiguity because there's there's a lot of ambiguity around the ring and sort of like just, you know, it's the feelings it engenders and sort of like how it takes shape with each person that lusts after it. Um, and it's a, it's a nice detail in this last, uh, in this last little exchange. I do agree with you, Carlo, that it's like a touch long because you're like, okay, like we're, we're, we know where this is going. Just like give him back the ring. We've just crossed the two hour mark. We've got an hour and a half left. We've got an hour and a half left. (laughs) Let's, let's Let's get it moving. So let's, let's swing back to Gondor's side. Yes. Because, uh, you know. After this, Frodo and Sam are well on their way into Mordor, and they're they're sort of uh, ruefully patting themselves on the back for actually we got there, Mister Frodo. We're finally here. Uh, and then let's swing back Gondor's side, and uh, let's talk a little bit about um, is Gandalf uh, in 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 the film. The more I sort of watch this <laughs> this time around, I was like. Is Gandalf like pulling a coup? Yeah. Like, is Gandalf uh, the Colin Powell of oh uh, of Gondor? No, never. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I I don't want to say like honestly, it's to a certain extent the the problem here is that the the text proves Gandalf right uh, of the film. Right. Mm-hmm. He is correct in that. Um, Denethor is not being effective. Uh, that being said, Denethor definitely has a point uh, that I believe is is mentioned in the initial um, conversation, where you know basically Denethor is like, "Yeah, he, you come here and tell me what to do, and you're, you're going to tell me what to do while you're also entertaining like some other dude who says he's the real king to come and take over." I don't think so. I'm not your puppet. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It, it struck me and I, I hadn't really thought about it until this time around. Like it really struck me how sort of martial minded the, 
entire sequence of getting Gondor ready for defense uh, of its walls was and how sort of um, wag the doggy uh, Gandalf was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this... And, and you know, in, in the, the group chat, Carlo, and, and before we started recording, you definitely brought this up, you know, in terms of uh, this film's proximity to uh, our involvement as a country in, in Iraq and the lead up to it and kind of like, you know, the, the, the banging the drums of war that was happening on the nightly news everywhere for like a year plus uh, before we finally got into like on the ground, like skirmishes there. Um, and, and, you know, like I'll, I'll say too, I, I grew up very religious, um, and, and, you know, was friends with a, a a pretty kind of deep, uh, bullpen of really religious, pretty right wing and very militant kind of kids and families, uh, in this environment. And I, when you mentioned this, it, it made me reflect on that, uh, quite a bit just because, you know, like there was. I think like a, a pantheon of films that these guys loved that like, you know, kind of got their war boners up mm. and, you know, mm, war boners. Yeah. So it was like, of course, you know, the, the, the ones that you'd expect, it was like, uh, it was like a saving private Ryan. It was like a, a brave heart. It was like a gladiator, but along that same line, it was this film specifically and not just, the Lord of the Rings series, they, you know, they liked all of them, but, but this one hmm. specifically because of, I think that level of there, there is something there's like a, there's kind of like an, an underbelly of just like nascent militancy uh, to this one that isn't there in the other ones. And I, and I, you know, if thinking even further about it, I can't help but remark and, and think about the fact that this film won uh, best picture the following year, like early on in, in 2004, right. Mm. That, that it was yeah, somehow tapping into the zeitgeist of the moment. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I remember that because they, the other two movies received nominations, but no awards. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, I remember at the time sort of uh, thinking, well, that makes sense. You want to wait till the entire story is told to see if it, you know, if, if it, uh, if, if it, achieved what it meant to do right right mm-hmm. um but also i do think and and given what we know about how uh the academy usually votes um yeah i i i think there is something there uh that maybe they were responding as well uh you know the academy isn't beyond wanting to f- sort of feel relevant in in some way shape or form it's mm-hmm. generally expressed in a way that's really dumb but there you have it uh but yeah the more i think about it the more sort of disturbed i became about that sequence until the actual battles uh like the the last charge of the rohirrim shows up and then you know my my brain sort of switches off and then of course um the 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 oliphant drivers show up and you're like oh no hold on (laughs) this is this is sort of uh, Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom level of uh, <laughs> racism here. Folks. Yeah, there's something right. there for sure. But, you know, you, you bring up a good point there already, right? That like embodied in like Theoden and specifically in like the Rohirrim, there's like this 
this idea of fighting a just war even uh even in in uh even if the outcome is uncertain mm-hmm. right like like this this sort of flattening of any sort of complexities of conflict to the point of just saying like we are going to answer the call we are like a just moral uh army and we are going to come to the rescue and and save our brethren and restore goodness and order and it wasn't too far removed from a lot of the sort of like bringing democracy to the middle east talking points that were happening so pervasively uh in well, I mean, the moment too the the funny thing is and and this is literally and i i have to wonder if this is tolkien having a bit of a joke it's literally the cavalry <laughs> the cavalry shows up mm-hmm. to save Gondor's bacon, which I mean, uh, to be fair, I don't think, and this is, it's difficult because I don't think that Theoden himself is a sort of a an avatar exemplar or, or what have you of uh, sort of like the the same thing. He's actually doing what's correct, what's noble. Right. Um, I think. I, he, I think it was just co-opted. I, that's that's more my point. Mm-hmm. I think that it's like it was very easy for the right and and for the the kind of hawkish mentality mm-hmm. of the time to to take this figure and to uh, project some element of themselves and their sort of moral war onto these characters. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it it also like there's a lot of I, I can understand the the squeamishness because you know there's a lot of you know men of the west speeches um later on uh which you know if if you didn't know anything about Tolkien absolutely disliking allegory right <laughs> for you know the the film definitely seems like it's doing exactly what Tolkien was trying to avoid Yes. Uh, and uh, I think I had mentioned, and I don't have anything to back this up right now, um, but I, I have to wonder if, uh, you know, Peter Jackson and company, you know, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens and, and so on, weren't also during the reshoots, because uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the cast was on contract for uh, the, you know, the, the, the time that it was going to take to shoot all, all of the three movies at the same time. Plus, I think it was an extra three years just in case they needed reshoots, wow. which not, we know now are rewrites. Mm-hmm. Um, and as things progressed, I have to wonder, you know, did they make Gandalf much more sort of, uh, sort of militant and, you know, the, the Gandalf Stormcrow uh, moniker that he is, that's leveled against him uh, by Theoden and by Denethor (laughs) isn't exactly what they're portraying here. Uh, And and part of that is you make Denethor a, a weaker figure or a very uh, sort of uh, incompetent or incapable right yeah. uh figure uh and then you place him against gandalf who is obviously you know audience favorite mm-hmm. right you emasculate denethor you give uh gandalf two uh phallic items to hold in this one you know both his staff and glamdring 
I think Glam drinks his, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and have him do a lot of cool uh, twirls and and spins and combo moves, you know, near the keep. So, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we do have that great scene where he uh, he gallops out to to save Faramir mm-hmm. uh, from the from the Nazgul. Yeah, as they're they're making their way back. But other than that, like the rest of it is just very much Gandalf sort of like, you know, taking the reins. Let's, uh, you know, he, he convinces Pippin to go climb like 400 feet to light a fire. Right. Right. Uh, which is sort of like done by trickery rather than actually having any persuasiveness. Yeah, um, it's kind of it's kind of the aluminum tubes moment, right? Like it's it's like a little hobbit, like kind of climbing up and and lighting the beacons uh, in instead of the actual representatives of 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 the city itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, uh, Theoden answers this um, necessary but also bogus mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, call. And reaches, you know, reaches the the Pelennor fields just in time um, to then, uh, you know, basically uh, do his last charge, which is, you know, just tremendously emotional. Like, like you said, Aaron, that speech that he gives is just like amazing. It's like a berserker speech. Yeah, it's metal as fuck. And like, that's the thing that I think it has gone underemphasized so far about these particular moments, you know, like for, for, you know, as, as sort of hawkish as they are and, and uh, as, as sort of marshalling as they are for, you know, this kind of lust for, for blood or, or for on-screen violence, they also like rule. So <laughs> it's like, you're, you're very much like kind of like poison pilled into it, right? Like, that that speech is so cool, uh, you know, and and it's like just badass, you know. There's something rousing about being like, uh, you know, like uh, to you know, I can't even remember what he says anymore. You know, like like ride uh, for for ruin and and the world's ending and the uh, the entirety of the this like row of of horsebacked Rohirrim just screaming death as they're about to like run into a bunch of spears. It's like, it's cool. It's very cool. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, what is it? Uh, Yeah. It's like the, the last part of it is just like so great. Spears will be shaken. Shields will be splintered. A sword day, a red day. And, you know, ere the sun rises, you know, that's basically, you know, like that's Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, line, Apocalypse Now line, right? <laughs> Love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah. Right? Well, and it's like, it's funny too, because like the thing that really gets Theoden's, uh, Theoden's blood going is like the promise of dying in a blaze of glory. <laughs> Because like they do this, they do this in they do this in Helm's Deep too, right? Where he's kind of like in a moment of defeat, just sort of like (laughs) accepting their ruin behind like the you know be behind the the wall here in in the in the caverns of Helm's Deep, and then Aragorn's like ride out with me one last time, right? Like like once more, 
the horn of what's it helm hammer hand will sound in the deep and he's like yes yes let's do it <laughs> and it's like anytime you need him to like do something just like promise him that it's gonna be like no dude do it it'll be badass like certain death and he's like i'm in I'm just I, now. I'm just imagining like a, a a an alternate timeline where you know he, he keeps on throwing himself into like suicide suicidal missions and just survives and, and survives, just survives them just continually keeps on getting more and more depressed yeah. because he can't achieve his goal. I, um, I keep winning all these victories on the field. Right. Like, what am I supposed to do? God damn it. I'd watch that anyway. If it was just like nothing but those kinds of speeches, like his, <laughs> it was nothing but his, his final speech from Return of the King. I'd I'd watch a movie of just that. Hell yeah! So yeah, um, so we get you know the the his death. He finally achieves his goal. Uh, by <laughs> he none finally other than- dies. <laughs> Yes, he does die by none other than the second in command of of uh, Mordor's army. So you know, uh, the 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 number two guy in the the whole organization takes him down. So it is pretty you know, badass. The, he got yeah, a no, I, I, he got an intense kill. Oh, for sure. But I mean, uh, the 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 rejoinder to that is that we get this entire sequence with Eowyn mm-hmm. uh, fighting him and like the the ridiculously oversized Morning Star that the Witch King has. Yeah, you know, like basically, <laughs> it looks I like mean, it, it looks-, looks like a squirrel feeder, like a spiky like I don't know, like birdhouse <laughs> or something that he's carrying on the well, end of his. I was gonna say that it it looks like. It, what guts from Berserk would have carried if he'd been into blunt weapons rather exactly. than a big sword. Yes. Um, but, you know, uh, and then you get the, the the line of, you know, I am no man, which is great. Great girl uh, boss Mary moment. With, well, you know, Mary's there with an assist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stabs him in the, in the shin or, or I'm sorry, in the calf. And uh, then she stabs him straight in the face. Um <laughs> Which is great. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess we could just maybe just jump ahead to the end of it all, right? Basically, you know, they they win the war, yes, uh, or they they win the battle for Pelennor Fields. Uh, the enemy is repelled. Uh, I don't think we're going to get into uh, too much about the otherization of the orcs, but I did want to just add another checkbox. Because we talked about the otherization of the orcs last time. Mm-hmm. This time, not only uh, you know uh, orcs of color, but also disabled orcs. Yes, right. <laughs> we could add those to the list of problems that Peter Jackson introduced by making them the way he made them. Yes. Uh, so you know, uh, it is what it is. Uh, I I have some definite reservations now that you know i'm re-watching these now but um but what becomes apparent is that the entire that entire battle and the battle that follows which aaron you had the great line which is that feud and speech is so metal that poor Aragorn standing before the black gates of Mordor to basically rally his men uh, which are you know just a fraction of the number of orcs that come marching out to meet them. 
it just falls, yeah, it just falls behind in comparison. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great speech, but also not quite as metal as like a cavalry charge that has like a swelling score and everything. Right. Well, and I remember too, like in the, in the trailers them emphasizing this part and, and I was, you know, kind of saying in the group chat, like it's like in any other film, this would be the moment, right. Where Aragorn's like, I see, you know, in your eyes, the same fear that would take the heart of me. And like, there may come a day when the courage of men fails, but it's not today. And they like cut those lines into the like climax of this like two and a half minute trailer for like the epic conclusion of the Lord of the Rings saga. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That, that is really, you know, it's pretty badass. And then <laughs> when you go see the film, like Theoden has this moment and you're like, at this point, I've forgotten that Aragorn even does that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that is because that rules and like Aragorn's thing is cool. But, but you also, you know, push back slightly on that and said, there is one sort of like, uh, addendum to all of that like the the seasoning on that speech when he like draws his sword like you know uh to you know his his like sort of eye level right before the charge and says for frodo kind of like softly under his breath and that's the moment where it's like okay this is cool it you're bringing it back to like the personal level of this thing his friendship with frodo his desire to like create one last aversion to give him a chance to succeed that makes it all worth it. That's the thing that makes it potent. Right. And and then we, we actually cut back to uh, Frodo and Sam, who are actually staring down at this, you know, the, the entire plane of, uh, what is it, the Gorgoroth plane or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which is this broken land. Uh, you know, Mordor is just a wasteland. Um uh, all they're seeing is campfires and torches and they're like, how are we ever going to get past that? And as you know, basically the orcs just file out mm-hmm. and they're like, well, finally a bit of luck at last. Convenient timing. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, that's, that's the thing. Like all of these little plot points are they're They're done in such a way that they, that they do mesh together, you know, totally. And it like goes back to that, you know, conversation that we have at the, or that Gandalf has with Frodo in the mines, you know, at the midpoint of, of the fellowship, you know, that there are other forces at work besides the, the forces of evil in this world. And he kind of says, you know, like it, there Bilbo was meant to find the ring. And so it, it also, you know, like heartens me to know that in some capacity, you also were meant to have it. And we were meant to be on this journey. And there's sort of that kind of like, you know, sort of like divine level of not coincidence, but of happenstance and and of sort of like synchronicity playing out across multiple levels of the film. Absolutely. And to add one more wrinkle to that, basically, Eru Iluvatar works in mysterious ways. Uh, as Frodo and Sam finally make their way, they they happen upon the actual cracks of doom, the, mm-hmm. the same place that Isildur, way back in the prologue, uh, was standing over the the fires of the of, of Mount Doom. Um, they find it by happenstance and uh, are immediately attacked by Gollum. Mm-hmm who has, you know, shed any pretense whatsoever of wanting to, uh, you know, be be on Frodo's good side or anything of the sort. This is pure malice. Uh, he manages to 
I did want to point out that he manages to even out the bite that he gave Sam <laughs> in the previous movie. Right. He bit him on the left shoulder. Now he bit him on the right shoulder. Yes. So it's all, it balances out. Um, and then gets one more so, good bite in, uh, in this scene too. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Frodo of the nine fingers, they call him now. Um, <laughs> no. no, that's you didn't, you've never seen the rank and bass return of the King, uh, Carly. I have not. That is the opening like song, you know. Frodo of the nine fingers. I will fingers. never forget Frodo that. of the Nine Fingers. Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Yeah, something to that effect. Oh right. Um, we'll have to revisit the Rankin Bass stuff because that stuff is pretty cool. It's, it is pretty cool. I mean, uh it 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 does a lot of work. Um but yeah, so if if ever you had any questions about, you know, how Eru Luvatar works in mysterious ways. Frodo balks at the last moment, mm -hmm. decides that he's not going to drop the ring in after all. He puts it on, and immediately upon putting it on, the Eye of Sauron realizes that he has been duped and just fixes its eye on the, the opening, the aperture of the, the cracks of doom, which also uh, helps the, the troops, you know, Aragorn's forces at the Black Gate, because all the Nazgul are called to fly like fools, if you will, mm -hmm. back to Mount Doom and try to stop whatever's happening there. Right. It's mm -hmm. going to be a photo finish. Yep. And along comes Gollum who is paying attention to those footprints jumps on Frodo and with one last chomp manages to separate the ring from Frodo and regains his precious. See, Gollum is a guy who knows how to achieve the results he wants. He really is. Yep. Um, but yeah. I, and then, you know, you get the, the scuffle between Frodo and Gollum and Gollum falls with uh, with as he falls into the lava, he has nothing but eyes for the ring. Mm -hmm. I love that, and it's it's great. It's great, uh, and you know, as a result, like basically, Mount like Sam saves Frodo. They rush out, and as a result of the ring, basically the entirety of uh, Sauron's power that had been sort of embodied in the One Ring uh, being released or destroyed. Mount Doom just just goes fucking beast mode, mm -hmm. and just erupts <laughs> everywhere. It's it's hard we, it's hard to really like to experience it in a home viewing sense and capacity. But that moment where there's kind of like that like inhalation and then just like final like burst in mm. in uh you know like uh in in Mount Doom and and uh, the tower as well is like. The, the the effects yes but also the sound design of it is so cool oh, and so sounds like perfect it's like it's like a, a distant kind of like pop without like a without like a peak and it just like rumbles and shakes you it's it's very well done yes oh i you know i in this rush to get to the get the ring into the the volcano i forgot the biggest applause line in the entire three films. Right, do you want to guess which one it is, Carly? No idea. I'm actually curious to to hear it as well, Carlo, because I'm not sure I, I recall. I may not be able to carry it, Master Frodo, but I can carry you. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Of course. Oh, yeah. Of course. 
That is a good one. It's, I mean, it's so good. It's just Sam. It's Sam in a nutshell. And it's just like brings the whole thing full circle. And like, you know, I, again, just if we're thinking about the ways in which, or at least I'm superimposing this onto, onto the story, the ways in which, um, Samwise and uh, Smeagol are are sort of mirrors of one another. They both really like reach their climax. Um, they both see the end that they're after the entire time. Mm-hmm. All Samwise wants is to save Frodo, right, and to protect him. And all Smeagol wants is to be with his precious, and both achieve that um mm-hmm. pretty pretty theatrically and and just to go back to briefly to Smeagol's death you know i um mentioned that he's my other favorite character and that um in addition to uh actually really liking him um and and, and feeling some pity for him you know, when we first watched this film, this is my only only my second time seeing it. But when we first watched this film, I was like, I I'm kind of dreading like whatever is going to happen to Smeagol because I couldn't think of a way for them to tidy up the story without, um, you know, sort of brutalizing him in a way that that I felt painful because I quite like this character and i just i love i love what tolkien does with his death is in that you know he's sort of spared from pain right like he he dies um full of lust and full of satisfaction and fulfillment and almost in this dreamlike state uh but he still dies and and the ring still gets destroyed so it's like all the boxes are checked off and as a as a viewer uh and and person who really likes that character um i was really pleased with the way that it was rendered in the movie um because i i felt like it was a nice um it just felt nice mm-hmm. i mean i i can i can certainly understand that and it also sort of it's one of these one of these weird tricks, storytelling tricks that Tolkien manages to pull off, right? Which is that this evil character, if he had not been, if he had been less malicious or less focused on the ring, uh, this would have failed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Exactly. So he manages to do actually the maximum good in the world. Yes. By simply doing what is currently his sort of uh, uh, corrupted nature now. Yes. Yes, precisely. It is beautiful. It's a beautiful inversion. And I also, I also appreciate that, um, you know, in his singular focus for, uh, in being after the ring, not only does he achieve the ultimate good of destroying it, but he also ends his pain ultimately. So mm-hmm. there's like, you know, it's also like the thing that corrupts him most is also ultimately the thing that ends up saving him like from himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So 
I guess after this, and and let me ask you this, Aaron, mm-hmm. because um, and and I don't know if it's because I've seen it so many times, or uh, or it simply isn't really that important. Do you remember when this first came out? The people co- sort of complained. I guess good-naturedly complained that it seemed to have five different endings. Uh, I do remember this. I remember people complaining quite a bit that it ended multiple times. And I don't know that I agree with that, per se. I think that it actually, you know, kind of, it tapers, right? Like, there are, are several things that need to resolve themselves for it to finally get there. But but also that I could see that being a common refrain and 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 can sympathize with it because we do kind of get the coda with the return of the Shire and the, you know Frodo sailing to the Grey Havens and and all of those things that are in in the novel. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, and and also like uh, Jackson does use rather effectively, I feel, um, like these fade ins and fade outs. Um, to and what it feels like to me is how either you are slowly waking up from a dream or slowly, Im- you know, immersing yourself back into one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the only time that I feel that this goes beyond what is justified is the scene that is oft parodied. Um, and in some cases, maybe like fan fiction, eroticized when uh, Frodo finds himself back in like a bed, I think in Revendell, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and or, or maybe in, in Gondor at this point. But each of the members of the Fellowship get their own sort of uh, like very uh, sort of like hazily warmly lit slow motion moments of walking into the doorway and then meeting him in bed and it's like sam does it and then mary and pippin do it and then gimli does it and then legolas does it and then finally like aragorn again and like every single one of them gets a moment and that scene probably goes on for what feels like a an honest like five to ten minutes and and it feels a little bit longer than it needs to be, but also, you know, I, I understand why. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels. Uh, I, I do. I do agree. It feels a little indulgent, but I do also think that after watching all of this suffering and you know, like you know, the 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 amount of pain in Elijah Wood's eyes uh, as Frodo in so many parts of this film. Uh, you know, it, it does feel a little indulgent, but it also uh, perfectly understandable. It feels like a victory lap, you know. Totally, and and it, Jackson should absolutely have it. I think that it's fine for him to have those five endings. I think he's earned it. I think that it's okay. So yeah, I think the maybe the last thing I wanted to touch or, or talk about is probably the idea of um. Like, I mean, it's it's really it's not that I don't think it's that much uh, or that controversial, I should say, to say that Frodo is completely like a sort of Christ-like figure in this entire film. Mm-hmm. I think you know, that that's down, fair. And this is like a medieval style 
uh, you know, because that's what Tolkien was trying to go for. So you get these shades of um, we we recently saw uh, and and you know did a, an episode on Excalibur, and it fe- mm. feels like the Grey Havens and that entire sequence just feels very very much like you know sort of like an Arthurian ending, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, definitely. Where you know the the noble the noble knight receives a wound that never really heals. Hmm. What does who does that remind me of? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who will then be borne off into a boat to live forever and perhaps return? Except not not here. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I I just I is that controversial? I mean, I, I I'll ask you guys. I don't think so. You know, like I, I think that it's, I think it's fine. I think it's fine to say that. And, and definitely, yes, it, it reads as myth making. It reads a lot like as sort of, you know, Tolkien aiming for this kind of, kind of, uh, maybe like transcendent sort of like conclusion. A lot like what mm-hmm. you said, like Arthurian legend. Yeah, there, there is that, that element of that kind of like almost Christ figure like kind of thing where he, he, uh yes yes ascends and and transcends past like i think the nature of of his hobbitness into something more uh magisterial at this point but the one thing i'll say is like you know the ending i think works because it it does something that i think that carly really appreciates about it too which is that the ending to both the the story in the books and in the film really favors sam by the end yes. you know it, it it kind of sort of deifies to an extent and and sort of uh you know symbolically knights frodo as this as this mm-hmm. figure of uh like i said just sort of like majesty and something sort of beyond his his sort of uh superficial and, and metaphysical kind of position and it and it roots it in sam and his continuation of the journey and the story and his uh his family and and the ways in which he becomes sort of this this everyday guy again and returns to a life um you know having been changed um but but ultimately just still very much human in in all elements and in all aspects right well and and, uh to perhaps put a nice little bow on my my theory that um you know frodo and sam are sort of split versions of one another or or sort of completing halves of you know an entire of a whole um when frodo departs and hands him you know like the book and he says mm-hmm. you know the last few pages are for you um if i'm not mistaken the the, the next line is you know I'm, I'm afraid you'll have to be entirely whole and yourself sam mm. uh and you know he's sam has even though he's now like married, has two kids, he's always sort of still doting and very sort of concerned about Frodo's well-being, mm-hmm. even though you know, it's been three years since they got back. So, you know, uh, part of that uh, fade in and fade out is obviously also that <laughs> three years have passed right. since they got back. And, um, but yeah, I, you know, I do think that the it also helps to end the story on a triumphant but also bittersweet note. 
and uh and the f- i i also think that this is sort of tolkien maybe not making a joke particularly but trying to tie things back together where the last uh the last line if i'm not mistaken in the book and in the film is i'm back which you right. know there and back again mm, haha right yep. and it's kind of uh sam's john wick moment right it's like everyone <laughs> keeps asking if i'm back <laughs> yeah i'm thinking oh, gosh. i'm back <laughs> you know sam shooting up a place uh, just methodically uh, doing gun katas uh, that that's something i'd watch oh, 1000% yeah, we'll that'll watch be, that will be i i will watch a, a film of that absolutely all right. Well, I I think that um, we we did what we set out to do. Uh, we went there, and we came back again. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, honestly, I, I do remember. And even this time around, even with a critical eye, you know, there was moments where you know, just getting misty or mm-hmm. just outright weeping because it's like you know, it's it's a great. And it, again, it brings it back to the human. Yeah, in this case, the Hobbit, <laughs> uh, because the Hobbits are the most humanized of the the entire you know cast of characters mm-hmm. in this. Um, so it brings it all back down to sort of like a a small level where you can sort of put your hands around it and and you know understand exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if you guys have any, any other last thoughts. Uh, before we we ask you about what you, what irons you may have in the fire, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean only that I would completely concur with that, right? That it's like, uh, you know, for for revisiting this, you know, as often as I do, and and this time around, especially doing so with a more critical lens, as you as you said, Carlo, um, I I am just like always overwhelmed by how much there is there that I love. That's just sort of been like permanently imprinted on my brain remembering how much of these films were like remembering how how they were such a formative part of my adolescence and and teenage years and and that i am yeah just totally indebted to i think you know the the films and and jackson and uh for for introducing me to, to tolkien's world and the lore and for for convincing me to explore it and and dive in further and I'm, I'm really thankful that i did i think it's a great kind of epic very classic story and uh if you if you don't already love the tale just from the the films alone you know pick up the book as well try it out yeah. there's there's a, a lot of richness there it's a really really great a great tale and uh, always happy to revisit it maybe we'll do it again sometime in the future yeah excellent all right. Carly, anything? I just have to say that as a person who, you know, was not invested in this text, uh, either, you know, the the books or nor the film, um, neither the books nor the film, I should say, just to be grammatically correct, um, that, you know, coming back to it through the behest of a person who is really, uh, really has a love for the material, um, I think was helpful for me. Um, like when I first watched these movies, it was because Aaron was like, I know that 
you know, uh, 20 years ago, you fell asleep watching the first one, but like, just watch these with me and like, and, (laughs) and sort of, you know, talk me through a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that he loved about, uh, about the story. Like, I think, um, that is, that's a, a mini version of what Jackson is doing for larger audiences, right? Like me coming to these stories through, um, through Aaron, a person who loves, uh, loves the material, I think, um, endeared me more to, to the films and, and Tolkien's work, um, outside of, you know, my own, my own opinions about it. And I will say that, uh, as you said, Carlo, I really, really like that it sort of ends with the the quotidian just march of life, right? We've spent the entire three movies in just like epic shit the entire time, <laughs> like the, it for, you know, just an onslaught of like mammoth undertakings and um and these really like larger than life characters and swings of the sword and and of fate and and to end on you know this as i said this very quotidian note of what day-to-day life is like after afterward I really like that because that's the stuff that you don't often see when a story ends, right? Like you see, oh, and they lived happily ever after, but you don't necessarily ponder the life. Um, Mm -hmm. And I appreciate getting to see a glimpse of that at the end of this story. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, So, Aaron, Carly, I hear you guys have a podcast. Could you tell me a little bit about this? <laughs> yes, of course. If uh, if you haven't listened to the other two episodes of of this trilogy on The Lord of the Rings, um, we have a podcast called Hit Factory that is about uh, the films of the 1990s, their politics, and why, uh, as artifacts, they are still uh, so prescient and and pervasive within the the cultural zeitgeist of the moment as well. Um, so we explore them through a lens beyond just kind of like the the same sort of like rosy colored nostalgia, and actually kind of dig into the the culture and the society that is being reinforced within them, and uh, which ones you know succeed at at questioning that thing. Some which ones are just very very steeped into in them to the point of of maybe not even realizing how ideological they actually are. Um, but we try to make it more, more entertaining that that sounds, it's really not as academic as I just made it. <laughs> that sounds entertaining <laughs> as shit to uh, me. We have lots of great guests on, um, Carlo and, and Pete have been on for an excellent, uh, a crowd favorite episode on spawn. Uh, and we may or may not be swindling them in to come back to speak about Adam's family movies. Yeah. So be on the lookout for, for <laughs> any number of, of reappearances of, uh, of pod side friends. Um, and, and beyond our, our own scope of, of podcasts here, we also, uh, very recently appeared on, uh, mutual, mutual friends. Uh, parents just don't understand, uh, to talk about the fascinating, animated series captain planet and a couple of its most uh memorable and controversial episodes so So that is that is out now 
Um, and uh, you should take a listen to it. We had a ton of fun on that one. Um, everyone was like popping off, firing on all <laughs> cylinders. And uh, I think we had a, a really good, really long discussion about about uh, the the this very odd byproduct of Ted Turner's mind. So um, yeah, definitely <laughs> definitely worth your time listening. They're a great they're a great uh, podcast, and and I know friends of of this show as well. Yep, for sure. All right. Well, thanks again for ha- for for coming on to talk to us about the Lord of the Rings films. Thanks for having uh, us. It was a major yeah. honor. Yeah, this has been a blast. Oh, it's it's been great, and uh, I can't wait to get to yes, the Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> All so right, good. Well, thanks again, guys, and uh, for everyone else out there, uh, thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll catch you next time on Potside. See ya.